From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Hey there. Thanks for inviting me into your home. I've been receiving a, a few emails over the last couple of weeks about the spinning globe that's part of the uh, the Conspiracy Show logo on my website, richardserrett.com. You've probably seen it. It's uh, it's the logo for the Conspiracy Show, not the TV show logo, which is kind of a new and updated version. But if you go to richardserrett.com, there's that spinning globe that's being held by hand, right? That's our, our logo. And, and a number of you have pointed out, quite correctly, that the Earth... The globe is spinning in the wrong direction, as from as seen from space. And been meaning to talk about this on air, but I keep forgetting. And then I received another email tonight, uh, which has served to jog my memory. Yes, you are correct. The Earth rotates from the west towards the east. So as viewed from the North Star or the Pole Star, Polaris, the Earth actually turns counterclockwise. But the globe, again, which is part of the Conspiracy Show logo on richardserrett.com, Again, not the new logo on the TV show website, conspiracyshow.com. But uh, the, the, the globe clearly is spinning clockwise from east to west. And some of you have been wondering, you know, was that a mistake? No, it's not. It's intentional. And, for, and good for you for spotting it, though. Uh, the idea is that on this program, we talk about being there, there being something wrong with the world. Remember Morpheus from The Matrix. He said it all. You're here because you know something. And what you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It's this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? I suspect many of you do. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be here at the bottom of the hour. She joins us once a month with something we call the Paranormal News Roundup. Some great stories. Uh, you've heard no doubt about this amateur sleuth in Great Britain who supposedly has cracked the Jack the Ripper case 126 years later. Uh, supposedly he's used DNA to identify the notorious Ripper. Uh, and this is incredible. Did you hear about this guy in Australia? He woke up from a coma and he started speaking fluent Mandarin. We'll talk about that too. Rosemary Ellen Guiley at the bottom of the hour. Uh, once again, don't miss this week's conspiracy show on Vision TV. Uh, in fact, it airs tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern across Canada. Uh, this is the episode regarding John Lennon and whether or not he was targeted for assassination. A couple of weeks ago, we aired our episode on the Obama birth certificate flap. And after the episode aired in Canada, I started getting calls from the media down in the United States. They had heard about this episode. And they wanted me to talk about it because there aren't a lot of TV shows in the U.S., at least on the mainstream media down there, that have been dedicating a 22 and a half minutes of, of network airtime to examine the case. And this past Wednesday, I think it was, I was invited on to the Peter Boyle's morning show, which is on KNUSAM 710 out of uh, Denver, Colorado. And Peter and I spent about an hour talking about it. And I got a lot of email and a lot of tweets, some positive, some negative asking me why I'm still talking about the birth certificate. Well, it hasn't gone away. Far from it. Uh, you may not have heard about it in the mainstream media, but it's not. It hasn't disappeared. In fact, uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio uh, from Maricopa County down in Arizona has this cold case squad, or a posse, if you will. And a uh, posse isn't just something, something from TV, from the old westerns. Uh, in Arizona, it's actually a constitutional... 
uh, constitutional thing. I mean, you know, they form these legal entities called posses to uh, to help uh, law enforcement investigate cases. So they have this cold case posse, and they've been investigating the uh, the Obama birth certificate, conducting a forensic investigation into it, and their chief investigator, Lieutenant Mike Zulo, who's a former uh, law enforcement official from New Jersey, and his team. They've concluded the long-form birth certificate is, in fact, a forgery. Not only that, but they say they're getting close to revealing who was responsible for creating the forged document. And there is a a gentleman by the name of Reed Hayes, who's a certified handwriting analyst and forensic document examiner, and he worked, or has worked, repeatedly uh, for Perkins Coyie. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Perkins Coyie. They're a, a law firm... And um, yeah, he, the, in fact, Perkins Coy defended uh, President Obama in his legal jousts on the birth certificate matter over the last five years. So this forensic document investigator working for the law firm that has been defending President Obama on this uh, birth certificate flap. And Reed Hayes has apparently provided the cold case posse with an affidavit in which he states that this birth certificate is 1,000% a forgery and not a very good one at that. So again, this issue is still very much alive. And I've got a gentleman on the line right now uh, who is called to speak on uh, per- on behalf of uh, Lieutenant Mike Zulo from time to time. And he's here to bring us up to speed on the latest with regards to the Obama birth certificate. He's no stranger to this program. Carl Gallops is the longtime senior pastor of Hickory Hammock Baptist Church, He's the author of the bestseller, The Rabbi Who Found Messiah. And additionally, he's a conference leader, evangelist, Christian media icon, former law enforcement official. He's one of the founders of video teaching material to the world-famous P.P. Simmons YouTube Ministry and Biblical Apologetics Channel. He's a graduate of Florida State University and the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And as I say, often asked to speak on behalf of Mike Zulo, the lead investigator of Shof Joe Arpaio's Cold Case Posse. Carl Gallops, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Uh, God bless you, man. Thank you for having me on the show tonight. It is good to be back with you. Not at all. Now, uh, respond just in a general way, and then we'll get into we'll drill down a little deeper to those uh, who say, "Listen, uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and his cold case posse—they don't have anything. If they did, they would have they would have taken it uh, to a, a, a county prosecutor or a state prosecutor by now, uh, and they haven't. And here we are, like three years later, and they still haven't presented." Uh, this evidence, if they've got it, why don't they present it? Yeah, well, just very generally, as you asked me to, I will respond, and then we can get more specific later. First of all, listen, I understand those who have that concern. I understand the angst that is out there uh, uh, among the public, particularly in America. But people who say that, what you just said, and by the way, that was a a great um, assessment, that was a great uh, um, uh, conglomeration of, of, of what they're saying, they're, they're just wrong. Uh, that statement is an out-of-context statement because there is a context to this. As you said, this has been going on for three years. Let me give a quick, quick update on the context. When it all started, Joe Arpaio was, uh, immersed himself in this 
study of this long-form birth certificate that was released based upon a, a, um, a, 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 a oh, goodness, what's it called, uh, citizens that uh, petitioned him, a 250-signature petition from citizens in his county. They felt that they might have been defrauded in the last presidential or the first presidential election if, in fact, uh, this birth certificate that he put up and said this was his identifying document, if, in fact, it was a fake and a forgery. Well, Arpaio kept going to these Tea Party meetings and, uh, you know, uh, re-election campaign meetings, and he kept being asked, what do you know about the birth certificate? And he didn't know much about it. I mean, he's sheriff of Maricopa County. Why would he care about a birth certificate of the president? But finally, he was given this petition, hundreds of signatures on it. So he said, okay, look, I'll investigate it, you know. So he put together his cold case posse, which is a constitutional investigative uh, committee uh, with uh, attorneys and law enforcement. Uh, Lieutenant Mike Zulo was, was placed as the, uh, the chief, the head of it. And, and Arpaio is on record, and Zulo is on record stating that, look, uh, please, I want to be the sheriff that, that exonerates the, the president on this birth certificate thing. He said, I'm tired of going to Tea Party meetings and not being able to talk about what I want to talk about. It always turns to this uh, birth certificate. He says, show me that this birth certificate is legitimate, and we can be done with it once and for all. Mike Zulo has testified publicly many times on my radio program and on many other radio and television programs that when he first got involved, uh, he he also thought, you know, how how could the president of the United States submit a forged birth certificate and put it on the White House website? Surely this will be easy to prove that it is an absolute uh, legitimate birth certificate. So that's how this investigation started. Well, just a couple of days into it, they discovered through some forensic examination, just basic forensic examination with digital document experts, that the thing was a fraud. It was a fabrication. It was a forgery. So they went back to the sheriff and said, Sheriff, sit down. We've got some bad news. And the sheriff said, what are you talking about? And Zulo said, this thing is a fraud. It's a forgery. And, and the sheriff said, oh, my gosh. So anyway, bottom line is they then immersed themselves in months and months of really nailing it down and proving it. They, they had two back-to-back -back news conferences at which the mainstream media, they showed up. But instead of asking legitimate questions, Richard, you, you know, they're on film. Anybody can go watch these uh, media conferences on P.P. Simmons and, and, and uh, birthreport.com and other places. Breitbart had them. Um, the media mocked him. They said, what authority do you have to investigate this? I mean, here is the sheriff presenting all of this forensic evidence proving that the birth certificate is a forgery and a fraud, and instead of the mainstream media saying, oh, my gosh, we've been duped, they said, what authority do you have? Well, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It, it, it was obvious that the media was somehow in the tank for him. So the bottom line I'm trying to tell you, Richard, and your audience is that from that point forward, uh, the cold case posse never gave up. The sheriff's office didn't give up. They immersed themselves in discovering further evidence. That's why there's this three-year period. And here's what happened. Here's where it turned a corner. Last year, around September or October, Mike Zulo, through various media outlets, including my radio show and the P.P. Simmons News and Ministry Network, announced, and Arpaio confirmed it. In fact, Arpaio was on my show one time, and they confirmed that in March of 2014, they planned on coming forward 
with more information that they had found that was uh, just mind-boggling information, they both said, things they had run across and things they had discovered that were just unbelievable. And in March of 2014, they were planning on releasing this. But as January rolled around, December, January, February, several huge breaks occurred and amazing, universe-shattering information is what Mike Zulo called it, came forward. All right, let's just take a time out here. Let me j- jump in, Carl. We'll take okay. a time out, and we'll, uh, on that cliffhanger note, when we reconnoiter on the other side of this break, Carl Gallops will tell us a little bit more about what that earth-shattering information might be as we discuss. Yes, we're discussing it once again. It's not going away. The President Barack Obama birth certificate flap. Back with the latest... Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, before I get back to my conversation with Carl Gallops about the Barack Obama birth certificate flap, this following on the heels of uh, our recent airing of uh, the episode on The Conspiracy Show, uh... I just wanted to mention once again the Follow the Truth Tour, or the Follow the Truth Summit. Uh, if you go to followthetruth.tv, my uh, all-day conference happening in November, and you go on that website, followthetruth.tv, there's a question there for you. Scroll down, find the question that's related to the subject matter we'll be discussing at the all-day conference. And if you call Tim Spreen, my producer in studio, be the, one of the first two callers with the answer to that question, 416 360 0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740 with the correct answer you'll get a, pa- a pair of passes to uh, follow the truth the conspiracy show summit again Sunday November the 16th at the Regent Theater in Oshawa all right back to Carl Gallops now um, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and uh, his lead investigator, Lieutenant Mike Zulo, were to re- basically drop this bombshell uh, in March of 2014, which, of course, it didn't happen. Uh, so I guess the question is, why didn't it happen, and what's happened in the interim? Yes, yes. Well, as I was saying earlier, and by the way, Richard, thank you so much for having me on your show and giving me this opportunity. So in 2014, in the beginning of 2014, Uh, As I was saying right before we went to break, a whole new batch of evidence and information was brought forward and or discovered. I mean, both of those things happened, documented, hardcore, hard copy documented that morphed this uh, case of, of trying to determine the legitimacy of this birth certificate into something much, much bigger. And in fact, the information that came was turned over to Sheriff Joe Arpaio, and and from that, he has opened up an entirely new branch of criminal investigation that goes and connects all the way to the White House of, of, of what they believe to be criminal activity in Maricopa County that goes directly to the jurisdiction of Sheriff Joe Arpaio. So... So that is huge, and Sheriff Joe Arpaio has, has been on media and has been public saying that he has another branch of criminal investigation going that is huge, and it came from information that was gleaned as this birth certificate investigation took this huge turn, a, a, a right turn, a good turn, and that just delved them into the depths of the darkness of this case, 
And in the meantime, um, so Zulo continues to, who works directly under Sheriff Joe Arpaio, and he's assigned specifically to the birth certificate investigation. That investigation has gone very deep. And as Zulo has said, it has become very dark. That is, it's, uh, it's, it's earth-shattering information they have uncovered. He says it is history-making. It's something that this nation has never dealt with before. And so in the meantime, they had to vet that information, and they had to run their forensics, and they had to do all of their proper uh, investigation. Because, see, the thing is, Richard, it, you know, it, they're only going to get one chance at this. I mean, if they bring it forward prematurely, and particularly on top of what they now know and how huge this is, if they just bring it forward roughshod and 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 you know and, and halfway done, um, you know it could be, it could blow up in their face. They could be made laughing stocks and sure. it's all over with. Sure. Well, here's but the way I look not. at it. Here's the way I look at it, Carl. Yeah. Uh, either uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and his team, uh, the Cold Case Posse, have have a case. Yeah. They've got the evidence, and yeah. that's real. In which yeah. case, then it demands media attention. Or if it's if it's a fabrication, then we have a a, a major uh, law enforcement official and his team of investigators that are perpetrating a hoax, and that demands media attention. But yeah. we're not getting either. Yes, no, you're you're exactly right, Richard. Very very astute. You have nailed it. And you you know, in in the world uh, that listens to my media presentations, they know. That my integrity is all important to me. But prior to being in the ministry, I was in Florida law enforcement for 10 years. So I have a lot of law enforcement experience. I've been to Washington, D.C. with Mike Zulo. Mike Zulo and I talk almost every single day, literally. I talked to him twice today. I talked to him yesterday for over an hour. For, for years, we've been talking every day. We've been in and out of the Capitol together. We've been in and out of congressional offices together. I know what's going on. Mike Zulo and I communicate. We're good friends. And I'm telling your audience, they have information. This is not a hoax. And you're right. It would have to be one of those two. So what I'm saying to your audience is be patient. Let this investigation run its course. They were announcing to the world that they were going to bring the information in March of 2014, but they couldn't because of what else they uncovered, and they had to get to the bottom of it. They're almost to the bottom of it now. Arpaio was on Fox News several months ago saying that they were almost to the bottom, that they actually now were on the trail. They knew who actually perpetrated the hoax and hinted that it was huge. The information was going to blow uh, America away when they, uh, when they were um, it, it, it told of who was involved in all of this. In the meantime, Mike Zulo has been to Washington, D.C. five times in the last couple of months, uncovering more information, meeting with very high uh, uh, government officials who are now involved in this. And this is something Mike Zulo has just uh, revealed in the last few weeks uh, in various media outlets, and Arpaio and Zulo both have said that this information is going to come forward, All and right. it's going to come within months. Now, so, I, w- sorry, Carl, when, when I did the, uh, the the TV episode on this, uh, and I interviewed Phil Berg, who some consider the sort of the father of the birth, uh, birther movement, the uh, former uh, deputy um, uh, yeah, Philip Berg. attorney general from Pennsylvania, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, a, a registered Democrat and a, and, a, and a lifelong member of the NAACP, for those who think that this is racially or politically motivated, I, I also interviewed Carl Denninger. Yes, Carl Denninger is also considered the father of 
the Tea Party, but this was the the Tea Party that was not about you know guns, gods, God, right. and gays. This was the the Tea Party in its early genesis that was strictly about you know responsible spending and the like. Right. And uh, and and of course, Deniger you know uh, is very familiar with. Uh, uh, he, he runs a number of online tech companies and so forth. And at that stage, when this episode was put together, we were still talking about things like on the document. There, there were nine layers that appeared to be visible there that you, you can't take a, a paper document, run it through a Xerox copy and, and have it look like that. Right. That, it, that it appeared there were something like on the order of nine separate layers, which would tend to suggest this thing was pieced together in a computer. Yes. Now, it has been suggested by some. In fact, there was someone from, who worked with Adobe who said, no, that's not necessarily true. You can, in fact, create something that looks like this with the layering effect from an original paper document run through a Xerox machine. Yep. The no, other thing no. that, that we focused on in that episode, and, and Deniger pointed out, was what appeared to be the presence of kerning in the typeface on the document, which suggests... Uh, you can explain a little bit more about kerning, but it, it, it would suggest that it was not typed out by a manual typewriter back in 1961, but something that could only have been produced by a word processor. I've been told that that's not true. There were manual typewriters from the 50s and the 60s that were capable of kerning. So let's start first with the layering, okay. and then I'll get you to refer to the kerning. Well, yeah, well, okay, and I'll be glad to address that, but I can tell you at this point, the investigation has moved so far beyond those matters that it's that that's, that stuff almost doesn't even matter anymore. But since you've asked, I, I will tell you that yes, the layering and and all of the anomalies—I forgot how many there were now—but every one of them have been have been tediously gone through for, with deep forensics for several years. Some of the anomalies they've discovered did not have near the sensational uh, uh, impact that they thought, but many of them did and do, and they have proven forensically. Uh, Mike Zulu has said 1,000% that this is a forgery, a fabrication. The kerning, uh, listen, kerning, true kerning, where letters uh, purposely nudge up and overlap each other. In other words, you could have an N and then right behind it a J where the bottom of the J purposely nudges up and comes underneath the N. That can only be done with electronic means of, 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 of uh, and computer-generated uh, typing. Now, the old manual typewriters could not do true kerning. But the old manual typewriters from time to time could produce uh, letters that, that, that squunched up on each other and, and that even overlapped a little bit in each other's spaces. That's correct. But true kerning could not be done until the invention of the electronic uh, means of producing these letters. But again, let me just say, this investigation is so far beyond that. The, wor the words universe-shattering and earth-shattering information of, of, of how all of this came together, who put it together, what's going on, who was involved, what was involved, is, 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 is mind-blowing. And once these uh, conferences are held, the public will then know and understand that. Now, you mentioned at the very beginning of the show, Reed Hayes, who works for, worked, did a lot of work for Perkins Coy out of Hawaii. Reed Hayes is a card-carrying Democrat, card-carrying liberal, card-carrying Obama supporter. And here's how he got involved. 
he was a is a digital document expert, one of the premier digital document experts in the United States. He's written several of the premier handbooks on digital document investigation. He is certified to testify before um, a federal courts in our land and has done so. And he worked for the for the agency, the the law firm that actually defended Obama's uh, birth certificate in the first three, four, five years of his presidency, as you said. But here's what happened. Once Mike Zullo, and this has been a couple of years ago, started uncovering all of this information, and this is before the universe-shattering information, he issued a challenge. He said, look, Mike Zullo said, I just want to get to the bottom of this. I'm an investigator. This is not political. If somebody can step forward and prove to us forensically and sign affidavits and show us your forensics uh, that this birth certificate is legitimate, I will drop the case and I will publicly announce it. Reed Hayes called him and took him up on his challenge. So Reed Hayes signed all the proper paperwork. All of Zulo's information was turned over to Reed Hayes. The deal was that Reed Hayes had to publish in an affidavit form his findings, good, bad, ugly, whatever. Reed Hayes investigated it, sent a 40-page affidavit to Mike Zulo, which he now has in his possession as part of the evidentiary, uh, evidentiary trail, Reed Hayes signed a 40-page affidavit testifying that the document was a 100% forged fabrication uh, in, and 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 um, just a, it was a fake. So I mean that, and that's not even the earth-shattering information. That's just a little piece. That's just a little part of the evidence they've been collecting. So, so the naysayers really, really are off base on some of these things that they're claiming. This Xerox machine uh, debacle that you mentioned about a Xerox machine being able to p- produce that. I'm not at liberty to say what they did, but. The, uh, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office investigative team, they investigated that to the hilt. I mean, spent tons of money, uh, uh, ran all manner of tests using the very uh, Xerox machine that was mentioned. And it, absolutely, you cannot produce the anomalies that are on that birth certificate by making a pass, uh, uh, making a copy of a birth certificate. It cannot be done. And so that is false information. The other thing really is important for your audience to know, Richard, this investigation with Arpaio and Zulo is not a birther investigation. It truly is not about where Obama was born. That really hasn't even come up in this investigation. It is about, first of all, Arpaio's criminal investigation with criminal activity the White House has allegedly been involved in in Maricopa County, and secondly, is this document the only identifying document that Obama has ever brought forward to the public? Is it a forgery? Is it a fake? Is it a fabrication? Now, you know, if we discover where he was born after that, then that's okay. But this is not a birther thing. This is about a criminal offense committed upon the American public. And I want to remind your audience, the first birthers was not Philip Berg. The first birthers was Obama himself followed by Hillary Clinton. Let me explain. From 1991 to 2007, Acton Deistel Publishers published in their publishing pamphlet about a new young author they had named Barack Obama. And in all of their literature for all of those years, 16, 17 years until he ran for president, all of their literature said Barack Obama raised in Hawaii, born in Kenya. So Barack Obama had to have approved that biography. I'm a best-selling author. I have several best-selling books. My biographies in my books, my publishers um, edit them, but I have to approve them. 
So for 16, 17 years, Barack Obama told the world in print through his official publishers that he was born in Kenya. His editor has said that that was a a fact-checking error. Yes, absolutely, and I understand. But here's the deal. Again, I'm a best-selling author. I know what my biography says. I can't imagine that for 17 years my biography, and I was born in Florida, by the way, if my biography said I was born in, 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 in uh, Australia. For 17 years, I, I wouldn't catch that. Right, uh, right. Here's the that, other thing. That's, that's here's, unfathomable. Here's but, the other thing, Carl, though. There was, and I sent you a copy of this, and you, but you'd already seen it, of course. There yes. was a 1990 uh, New York Times article. We're almost out yes. of time here. Uh, when uh, Barack Obama was named as the first African-American to be named to the Harvard Law Review as editor, uh, yes. there was a, an interview and a write-up in the New York Times, and it mentioned in 1990 that he was born in Hawaii. Yes. Oh, I'm very familiar with that. And so my point is that either Barack Obama was born in Kenya, because that's what he and his publisher said for 17 years, or he is a deceiver, uh, a liar, um, an opportunist who let that fly for 16, 17 years because he thought it made him look good to a certain audience. Either way, it doesn't bode well for him. But the point I'm making is that's not conclusive proof that he was born in Kenya just because his publishers had that. But the point I'm making is people that call folks like me and, and, and Zulo birthers, we're, we, we're not birthers. We, we're, we're not out here proclaiming where he was born or where he wasn't. Uh, Obama it was the first birther. Now, the second big birther was Hillary Clinton. And by the way, this is backed up with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, with... Uh, uh, hardball, uh, Chris, Chris, uh, Chris Matthews. Matthews. Hardball. Carl, uh, listen, I'm I'm sorry to, to jump in and cut you short. I'm running out of time here. I yeah. you will have to pick this up at another time. Listen, this is not dead. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop covering it, despite what the the nasty emails say. And I appreciate your time. We'll uh, oh, we'll oh, to be continued. It, I'm sorry we ran out of time, but thank you for having me. No worries, Carl Gallops. Senior pastor of Hickory Hammock Baptist Church, best-selling author of The Rabbi Who Found Messiah and spokesperson for Mike Zulo, lead investigator of the Cold Case Posse. Back with more with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our Paranormal News Roundup, right here. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts on the paranormal with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, researching, investigating, writing, and presenting and teaching. Her present work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences of all kinds. She has done groundbreaking research on shadow people and the jinn. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing well, Richard. It's been a very busy summer, and I'm getting ready for a busy fall. Yeah, you got the Mothman Festival coming up very shortly down in Virginia. Mothman next, Mothman next week, and I've been there every year since 2004. And didn't you meet your uh, your husband down at the Mothman Festival? We did. We met actually in 2004, which was the very first year for both of us to attend the festival. So uh, it has a special significance now. Uh, since we got married a little over a year ago, going back to Mothman is kind of like, uh, you know, it's got a romantic 
edge to it, too, now. Absolutely. Listen, a huge story. We talked a couple of months ago uh, about researchers in England who had managed to narrow down the actual neighborhood, uh, maybe even the actual street, where they suspect the infamous Jack the Ripper lived, uh, although the uh, the houses, that street has been totally uh, demolished. But now, but now the Daily Mail, this is a real bombshell, has announced that Jack the Ripper has been unmasked and an amateur sleuth, apparently, has used DNA to, to, to break through and identify Britain's most notorious criminal 126 years after a string of terrible murders. Uh, tell me about this amateur sleuth and how he solved it. Well, he says that he purchased a shawl belonging to one of the victims and that he was able to do DNA evidence. He was able to obtain uh, DNA samples that he identified as belonging to the victim. This was, um, I believe it was the fourth victim, Catherine Eddowes. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. And then he also uh, found semen stains, he said, and got uh, DNA off that and positively identified it to one of the suspects from back then who was a Polish immigrant. His name was Aaron Kosminski, and he was considered a suspect at the time. He was a rather violent individual and wound up being incarcerated in lunatic asylums where he actually died. But even as good as this story sounds, the ripperologists out there are saying, not so fast. We don't know this for sure, and for several good reasons. One is, um, this fellow did not allow any uh, secondary tests. No one else replicated his results. And uh, another very good reason, the actual um, authenticity of the shawl has been in doubt. It's never been conclusively proved uh, to be her shawl. It's allegedly her shawl uh, that was passed on down um, until it was purchased by, by this fellow, Russell Edwards. Uh, and there were forensic tests done, according to other news reports, about a year ago that failed to prove conclusively that this was actually her shawl. So there are still lots of questions here. But uh, someone did bring up the point that um, now that we have this very sophisticated um, methodology for DNA samples, and I'm a big fan of uh, crime shows and forensic file shows and things like that, and it's amazing what they can do, um, that uh, if Aaron Kosminski was Jack the Ripper, then he would have left DNA evidence on other items of clothing, too, related to victims. So if there are other pieces that have been preserved uh, from some of the other murder victims, uh, that would be one way of proving this conclusively. But unfortunately, I'd say we're a long way off from proof yet, and probably a lot of ripperologists would rather have it that way. Uh, I, so many questions. Uh, we'll take a time out, and, and we've got so many other stories to discuss. But before we leave this one, first, my first impression is, why didn't anyone think about this before? Why did, has it taken, you know, I, I understand the DNA, uh, you know, testing for DNA has only really uh, come to the fore in the last maybe 30 years. But it's taken till now for someone to actually to come up with this idea. And then the other thing is, as you say, um, you know, this is not a, a done deal. One would suspect, you know, they were able to shoot down the DNA evidence in the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, 126 years later, I mean, how, how reliable 
is the DNA sample. I mean, it, it, it must have been handled countless times, and, and uh, I would imagine it would be very corrupted. Well, that's what some of the experts are saying, is that this uh, cl- piece of clothing has been so contaminated for more than a century, it would be difficult to prove much, much of anything. Absolutely. And you would think that the experts would be applying DNA technology to this if they could. Why did it take... Uh, a man who calls himself an amateur armchair detective, why did it take someone like him to come up with this supposedly explosive news? All right, ripperologists uh, uh, have a heart. Or t- sorry, ripperologists take heart. <laughs> this is not, this is not a case closed. For a while. <laughs> no, exactly. All right, Rosemary, back with more here on The Conspiracy Show as we do our paranormal news roundup. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, we're talking about uh, a number of items in the news of a paranormal nature, as we do every time at this month with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our preeminent, world-renowned paranormal investigator, her website, visionaryliving.com. And I have to ask you about this uh, Australian gentleman who awoke from a coma a deep, deep coma. And when he awoke, he was speaking, get this, fluent Mandarin. Rosemary, I've heard of these these types of stories before, but this, it, it never ceases to amaze me. Tell me about this gentleman. This is a curious case. Now, it did come out in the news reports that um, this young man had studied Mandarin in high school, but he had never been very good at it. And so here he uh, comes out of this coma, and suddenly he starts speaking fluent Mandarin, and it even took him a while to recover his English-speaking skills. So what was going on there? Well, we know from brain trauma injuries that, um, and, and from people coming out of comas that um, unknown abilities can come to the fore. And, in fact, uh, people who suffer severe head trauma uh, sometimes wake up very psychic. Uh, that part of the brain just suddenly bursts into action. Uh, the curious thing here for me in this case is that he wasn't very good in Mandarin, so how does he go from not very good in Mandarin in school to suddenly being, uh, you know, like he spoke at all of his life? And I'm wondering if there was some sort of past life connection there that maybe he had, uh, and that that, uh, that was his attraction for learning Mandarin. If he had uh, been Chinese and spoken Mandarin in a past life, uh, what if those memories uh, got burst open from uh, having this, uh, this accident and this coma? We could be looking at a combination of very strange factors here. Well, well certainly it, it proves one thing, that the brain is, is just an amazing, it's an amazing computer. And uh, perhaps it also speaks to the fact that the brain absorbs everything. It forgets nothing. So maybe while he didn't think he was very good at Mandarin, he wasn't forgetting any of those lessons. And something happened during, uh, you know, after the uh, the coma that sort of <clears throat> reawakened that portion of the brain or, or allowed all of those, those lessons that he thought were forgotten to come to the fore. Uh, scientists have said for a long time that if, uh, we knew how to awaken our full uh, capacities um, that the brain is capable of in terms of remembering, learning, and, and um, uh, you know, all these even extrasensory kinds of things. Uh, we, we would be amazing. Uh, we use so little of it. 
so that that could well be what happened here. Well, uh, God forfend I ever end up in a coma, but uh, if I wake up, maybe, maybe uh, I'll remember how to do algebra. <laughs> Uh, I, that would that would be one of my wishes too. <laughs> speaking of the uh, speaking of the remarkable human brain, uh, scientists are now talking about this is amazing too. Scientists are now talking about the possibility uh, that in the future we could send emails telepathically. So imagine being able to transmit a message into the mind of a colleague five thousand miles away just using brain waves. This is the coming technology, merging uh, physical matter with machine technology. We're, at some point, we're all going to be Borg, and hopefully we'll have the, the uh, soul and consciousness and morality of human beings, but we're going to have this uh, technology of, of the Star Trek Borg uh, kinds of uh, entities. And uh, we've had uh, machines that are able to look into dreams that... Uh, are able to uh, monitor all sorts of brainwave states. And uh, telepathy has been demonstrated in the laboratory. Of course, human beings have been using telepathy you know, since ancient times. But with technology, it becomes uh, more of a, um, a reliable art than an unpredictable skill. Uh, we can send messages telepathically, and it's a very uneven process, and it depends a lot on the rapport between the, the receiver and the sender. But technology has the potential of leapfrogging over that to provide something that we can replicate and that um, is as reliable as uh, sending a message over a computer. It's amazing. Well, I'm, I'm from Brantford, Ontario, originally, which is the telephone city. That's where Alexander Graham Bell uh, invented the phone and made, of course, that first historic uh, uh, long-distance telephone call and, and so forth. Uh, but this is, it takes that and it's writ large because it's, uh, that, that technology apparently is here now. I understand that someone in India actually sent an email to a colleague in France Again, using nothing but the power of his mind. They used something called uh, uh, EEG headsets. They recorded this electrical activity from neurons firing in the brain, and they converted the words hola and chow into, uh, into binary. And they were able to send a very short email, mind you, but they actually sent it using the mind from India to France. So this has arrived. This technology is here, and it's happening now, Rosemary. The binary to me seems, you know, it's kind of clung. I can understand how they did it. I mean, why they chose binary. But it's kind of a clunky way to get a message because the binary then has to be translated uh, on the other end as well. But uh, scientists have been looking at the power of, uh, like, psychokinesis, mind over matter, for some time. And many, many experiments in the laboratory demonstrating that we have the ability to control uh, matter with our minds, and we can control our thoughts too to uh, send them at a distance. So this is very exciting emerging technology. What worries me, of course, is always that dark underbelly of potential misuse, because you can imagine how technology like this would be seen as quite a military or strategic uh, weapon, even. Uh, to use in the whole world uh, political arena. Certainly. 
Uh, and, and, you know, these recent revelations from Mr. Snow- Snowden about uh, the NSA. So if they're able to, to hack uh, emails being sent online over the computer, uh, how much longer will it be before the NSA is hacking into our minds if they're not already doing that? And conspiracy theorists say they already are. How do we protect our thoughts? How do we shield our thoughts from uh, intrusive spying uh, by other people? And, um, you know, our thought, we have natural barriers around our thoughts now. And uh, imagine being completely transparent all of the time. It's, it has a, a frightening aspect to it as well as an exciting aspect. Sure. And we, we've all sent emails, uh, you know, prematurely, and, and then we thought a second after we sent, send it, oh boy, I better, I shouldn't have sent that. You know, are we going to have that same problem when, when we're sending emails, you know, with our mind? Just because you think something and send it in your mind? Uh, I mean, this could have, you know, tremendous implications. Listen, I got to ask you about uh, this UFO sighting over a, a, a town in Georgia. Uh, where this is, you know, right out of close encounters, of course, with the, uh, uh, the, the person who sees these, uh, these craft hovering above, and all of a sudden all the electronics in the vicinity just go kablooey, and that's precisely what happened in Loganville, Georgia. So many reports like this over the years, Richard, where uh, mysterious lights and sighted craft have been seen hovering around uh, power sources, and then the power in the areas affected. I, I remember the big wave from, 19, I think it was around 1953, that passed over Washington, D.C. and uh, into the interior of America. There were power outages associated with that. Uh, UFOs have been seen hovering over hydroelectrical plants, nuclear power plants, reservoirs. Um, it, it's like they are looking for energy sources uh, to make use of themselves, and uh, that's the speculation of a lot of ufologists: is that um, they're drawing power from our power in order to uh, navigate and continue to manifest in our reality. I think many of these um, these craft are interdimensional, not extraterrestrial, and uh, they probably do need some sort of energy source in order to maintain a presence in our reality. So what happened down there in Georgia is very similar to many other reports that we've had throughout the entire uh, post-World War II age of UFOs. And uh, this was quite a this was quite a sighting. There were eight to ten orb-like lights uh, close to the treetop level, according to this witness. Eight to ten of these things. And that's quite a few. Uh, usually, people will see one, maybe uh, a couple, but to see that many. Um, that's that's quite quite a sighting, and we also don't know if these are are craft or they're some sort of sentient energy form, um, you know, entities, an intelligent presence that's manifesting as an orb of light uh, as well. Uh, there could be a number of possibilities there, but uh, the fact that uh, these whatever they are when they do show up. Uh, they seem to need our energy, and then uh, we do get affected. Our, our uh, cell phone and telephone uh, capabilities get interrupted. Uh, there are power failures. Uh, we've had so many cases of, of contactees uh, in cars. You know, the engine dies, the electrical systems die. So um, 
there's an impact on on uh, our power sources when these things manifest. Uh, in this case, the witness reported uh, three utilities that were affected as he as he saw these lights from his back porch. He lost uh, his cell phone, his internet, and his television both went out. If uh, if there are aliens who are capable of doing this on a mass scale, uh, if they if enough of them ever arrived and were hostile enough, they could probably put the world out of uh, electricity uh, in nothing flat, and uh, that's kind of a scary thought. All right, Rosemary, always a pleasure, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk in one month's time. But in the meantime, people should check out visionaryliving.com. Thank you very much, Richard. My pleasure. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. All right, and that, uh, well, we're just inching along here almost uh, to the end, about time to dim the lights. But before we go, just want to mention, coming up uh, next week on the program, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn will be talking about the mystery of the Shemitah. What is the Shemitah? Well, it's a 3,000-year-old mystery that holds the secret of America's future, the world's future, and perhaps your future. That's the mystery of the Shemitah. Uh, with Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, of course, uh, who uh, is the author of the bestseller, The Harbinger, uh, which links sort of the events of 9-11 and, uh, and uh, the uh, recent economic collapses uh, with um, some interesting passages in the Bible. Uh, also, wanted to once again uh, mention followthetruth.tv, the website uh, where you can find more details about my upcoming conference, November the 16th. That's a Sunday, all-day conference in Oshawa at the Region Theatre. Six amazing speakers. Don Schmidt, the world's preeminent Roswell UFO investigator, Jim Penniston, who is a key witness to the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. He actually walked around the craft, touched it, took notes, drew pictures in his notebook. Also, Jim Elvidge, of course, the electrical engineer who was with us last week, who has written a book called The Universe Solved, and he posits a very interesting theory that we are living in a digital simulation. This is fascinating stuff. And Professor Ronald Mallet, the theoretical physicist from the University of Connecticut, will talk about time travel, and he is building a time machine, a theoretical time machine. We'll tell you all about that as well. Uh, we have each week a brand new question on the followthetruth.tv website. And uh, every week on this program... I'll alert you to that. If you go onto the website, find the question, call in, you could win tickets. Tonight, Bruce Earl and Linda Chalmers uh, both walk away with a pair of tickets to follow the truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, for correct for correctly answering the, uh, the question on the website, uh, which was the name of the rancher who found the, uh, the UFO debris near Roswell. That was, of course, Mac Brazel. Congratulations to Bruce and Linda. You each have a pair of tickets, and we'll see you Sunday, November the 16th in Oshawa. Follow the truth. Thanks, Tim Spreen. Back next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, and coming home. <laughs>